Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. As always, grateful to open up God's Word with you, so please meet me in Romans chapter 1. We will be in the second verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four uh, books of the New Testament. Those are the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and you'll hit Acts, and then Romans, if you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left, Romans chapter one, verse two. Um, I wanna remind us that our, our members, specifically that we have a members gathering uh, at 7 p.m. on Sunday evening. We're gonna review finances, kind of share how God has been using us as a church to bless and befriend and be able to uh, help support our friends, brothers, sisters, and neighbors during this time and also talk through um, a plan of what it will look like by God's grace when we begin to meet again uh, physically. Uh, after the state of Illinois released their Restore Illinois plan, we were able to sort of sync up with that plan and, and hopefully put together a good idea of what uh, we will be able to do and when we will be able to do it. And so uh, again, Sunday uh, night, 7 p.m., the Zoom link has been uh, shared and also, if you're watching this, listening to this on Sunday, happy Mother's Day to you moms out there. Grateful for you all and all of the ways that you are living and breathing out this gospel that the Lord has uh, commissioned you to do in the ways that he has called you to do it. Bless you this day. Uh, see, through the first verse of Romans, we've been introduced to Paul. He's, he's shared a little bit about who he is. And, and, and in the ways that he has introduced himself, we've learned a lot about the people that he's writing to. If you remember, the ways that he spoke about himself as a slave, about his apostolic ministry, about the way that he had been called by God, uh, chosen by God, sovereignly elected by God, all of these ways that he introduces himself really tell us about the culture that he is writing into and, and what he is trying to confront, if you will, even in the ways that he's introducing himself. And as he does so, we get a real picture um, of who they are. And therefore we see that we're not much unlike, not unlike them. And uh, they are new Christians, a, many of them Gentiles, not, not Jewish. Um, they're a new church. Remember this uh, gospel address, this, this letter of Romans would have been coming to uh, the people of God in the first century, just an, a few years um, after the death of Christ, uh, probably just a couple of uh, decades, just about 20 years. And so ultimately we're seeing this culture that Paul is speaking into, and yet he is writing to them about this gospel in a time when they are very young in their faith and young as a community. And he writes them explicitly about what the gospel is. This is what takes up the majority of chapters one through five in Romans. Here, Paul is essentially saying, here's what the gospel is. This justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But now a righteousness from God has been uh, manifested apart from the law. And so that, that's what he focuses on the first five chapters. From chapter six through 16, he really focuses on the love and faithfulness of God. He, he wants to ground them in this understanding. He hopes to unify them in who they are, unify them as a church because he desires for them to partner with him in his mission to Spain. And in particular, then he has a lot to consider as he writes to the Roman culture. His Roman culture was set against the gospel message, not unlike our secular Western culture that you and I find ourselves a part of. See, though I think this, this sort of slice of culture is being contested that you and I 
um, are a part of every day. It's being contested. There, there's sort of a rising um, a number of congregations of color that are really moving against the tide that maybe many upwardly mobile, traditionally white churches are experiencing, meaning that there's often this decline or secularization of upwardly mobile majority culture churches. But in congregations of color, we see a surging of more and more men and women becoming followers of Jesus. And this is kind of what was going on in Rome. Different groups of people growing, becoming more like Christ, more Christians, and in other ways, be moving, moving away from the God of the Bible, moving away from seeing the world, understanding the world through the lens of the gospel. You, you see, in, in our day, many of us presume that religion is fading away, but it's not that easy. Religion in certain forms is fading away. Uh, statistically, categorically, what we're seeing in different studies and research projects is that religion that's inherited, somebody born into a particular kind of understanding, raised up in that, that way of thinking uh, across the board, all different kinds of religions, people are stepping away from those kinds of things in large number. But what we're seeing arise, even in majority culture churches, is an, in any kind of faith where someone has made a personal decision to join or to take up that particular worldview. Not only that, but again, we see congregations of color, particularly Latinx churches uh, all over the world, as well as African-American and Asian churches, all growing throughout the world. And so when we look at Chicago, a very large city, metropolis, not, you know, again, not unlike Rome, we see this secularization, progressive viewpoints, different kinds of uh, a plethora of worldviews. And, and so in some respects, the, the culture around us is becoming less Christian, and we may, may sense this, we may feel it. And yet because of the multi-ethnic makeup of our city, our, our city is actually becoming more um, in, in line with the, the God of the Bible, more Christian, more in tune with God's spirit. And that kind of flux is, is exactly what was going on in the first century world that Paul was a part of, that Paul was writing to as he wrote to many different churches, but particularly to the church in Rome. If you remember, even as Rome uh, begins to spread, the Roman Empire begins to spread all out the, throughout the known world in the, in the first century, in the first few centuries, we are seeing from 40 AD through 300 AD, the church, the Christian church growing by 40% every 10 years. And you see the surge then of many, many more men and women becoming followers of Jesus at the same time as this Roman court culture, this philotemia, self-honor, love of honor culture pervade the entire world. And so we can relate a lot to what and who Paul is writing to. They are new and the kind of culture that they are steeped in is very familiar to us. Paul wrote this letter and then less than 20 years after Christ's death. Therefore, um, the church, which was founded on the other side of the ascension of Christ is all new. And because many of them were Gentiles, they were learning everything. They were all learning and trying to soak up in all kinds of knowledge. They were learning to pray. They were learning to read the Bible. Many of them, in large measure, had never read the Old Testament scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. So they're, they're learning to pray. They're learning to 
regularly gather and worship, regularly read God's word. They're learning to take care of one another, as many of us in our congregation are learning to do. And and for sure, learning to do that in a new way during this particular season of life and of ministry. And so what we have, these Christians, again, starting in 40 AD, up through about 56, late late sixth um, decade there in the first century, where Paul is beginning to write, or Paul writes this letter, New Christians learning all of these things and and therefore definitely marginalized, definitely a people who were on the outskirts of society. So they're new, they're marginalized in the particular place that they call home and where they're learning to follow Jesus. And I'd like to suggest to you that marginalization and novelty or, or being new in the faith are two prime reasons why we experience suffering. Those who find themselves in the margins of society are constantly vulnerable to the different things going around in a particular city or world by way of persecution. Um, and, and then as, as a new follower of Jesus, certainly more susceptible, the evil one loves to attack new followers of Jesus. And so spiritual warfare takes place in the early days and no doubt years of being a follower of Jesus. It's not that the evil one leaves you alone after a particular time. He's always sending his minions in the darkness of this world, is constantly pulling at followers of Jesus. This, this world is not our home, we're taught in the Bible. And therefore, they had to remain vigilant. They had to understand that they were in the middle of not only this marginalization, marginalization as, a, as a people in the city, but also the newness of their faith. And so Paul is writing to these particular people, keeping in mind the suffering that they were likely going through and that they certainly would be going through. And in all of this, Paul continues to write in Romans. Now, away from his personal introduction, now to describing who Jesus is. And that's where we'll pick up in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. So read it with me. Romans chapter one, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We've got a lot to unpack. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we uh, ask for your help as we come to your word. And it's really refreshing, Father, that we do get to come to your word that in the middle of uh, continuing stay-at-home orders and the challenges of being the church in the middle of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, in the middle really of incredible opportunities of demonstrating your love, not only to one another as brothers and sisters, but to our neighbors, our friends around us. And so, Father, help us. Would you comfort us with your word today? Would you encourage us? Father, would you help us to know what it is to be on mission today? Would you, would you help us to lament our sin? Would you reveal ways that we are not being faithful and obedient to you today, God, so that we might be uh, emboldened, we might be empowered by your spirit to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called us. And so I ask for your help, God, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word. And I pray, Father, that as your word is proclaimed, that we would submit ourselves to it, that we would not prepare our rebuttals and prepare our responses and our defenses about why we're doing enough or why we don't need to obey this or live in this particular way in light of the gospel. God, I pray that you'd break us down and you would build us up for your purposes, our good, our joy, and for the good of the world around us, and ultimately that it would be for your glory. And so we ask that you do that, God. Encourage your church today through your word. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, the way that Paul is going to encourage uh, 
the early Christians in their faith is by speaking about the idea of a promise. Now, God is the God who makes promises. And I think really even at the very basic level of to be a Christian is someone who orders their life around the promises of God. To be a follower of Jesus is one who not only knows the promises of God, but lives their life in response to and in anticipation of those promises being fulfilled. And so what it then means to be a church is to be a people united around the promises of God, who he said he is, who he said he will be, and, and what it is about his character and his work and his nature that he has communicated to be clear. And therefore, the tension, the great pressure of the Christian life is living between the promised word of God and the fulfilled word of God. And so Paul is writing for the sake of this sort of theological unity being centered around the promises of God so that the Roman church would not only have have sharp minds around the things of God, but that their hearts would be softened by their condition and by the love of God. And they'd also be unified as they ultimately would join him, Paul's desire in his mission to Spain. And, And that's what he writes in verse Two, but in order to understand, you'll notice as we first read verse two, we need to un- we need to read verse one as well. So let's read verses one and two as we've taken the first three weeks in our series to review uh, verse one, which uh, I hope has been helpful in taking our time to walk through Paul's introduction. And now we'll get to his introduction of Jesus in his um, greeting here in Romans. So Romans one, verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. If you, you'll notice that that second verse is dependent upon the first, not just in the flow of thought, but very particularly in the uh, breakdown in the syntax of the language that we cannot ultimately fully grasp what's taking place in verse two unless we know what's going on in verse one. And I'd like to suggest that's constantly true of the scriptures. Too often we try to hijack and pillage a single verse out of the Bible and and say, what about this? And and God gives us this brilliant context, not only in the paragraph around a particular sentence, but an entire book and that, that book's placed within the larger canon. And so we have to look at the context here and see that that specifically, that that word, gospel, which we find in verse one, is what all of verse two hangs on. You'll notice Paul is set apart for the gospel of God, which that is, that is the gospel. He, that is God, promised beforehand. So the promise uh, which Paul speaks about is the promise of the gospel. It's the gospel promise. What we looked at last week, the particular nature and is ultimately Jesus himself, that Jesus is not just a message or the gospel rather, not just a message that's proclaimed. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself, the gospel promised, Paul says, through the Old Testament, woven through the text, woven through the prophets and the prophetic writings, the holy scriptures, Paul says, that is who was promised to us, the gospel, Jesus himself. Promise then becomes a really important consideration for us. And and when we look at the the idea of promise, particularly within the scriptures, the the idea of covenant begins to come into the forefront because that's ultimately the scripture's language for promise is a covenant, particularly between two parties, namely God and his people, but also between human beings. However, before we get to any kind of promise or covenant made between God and people or, or 
people amongst themselves, we need to understand that the first promise or the first covenant was made actually within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's what theologians call the redemptive covenant or the covenant of redemption. This is an agreement before the foundation of the world, which the Father uh, architects, the Son agrees to um, accomplish, and then the Spirit will apply to those who would be called according to his purposes. And what they agree to is the essentially the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who would redeem all things from the curse of sin, and who at the end of the age would bring all things together again. This is in the foreknowledge of God that he does not just elect those whom he would save, but the entire project, the entire covenant reality, the entire redemptive history, God the Father, Son, and spirit agreed to before the foundation of the world. Charles Hodge, um, theologian, has laid out eight distinctives about the redemptive covenant and then three agreements that Jesus, the son of God, ultimately makes um, as it relates to the redemptive covenant. Leo Burkhoff, or Louis Burkhoff, rather, um, the reformed theologian also had a list, but we won't review those today. Suffice to say, when we look at John 17, Jesus seems to be communicating an awareness, not only of what he has promised before time, but that through his life, he has fulfilled what he has promised. The language in John 17 is really clear in the way that he was even speaking to his heavenly father. He's saying, what you have sent me to do, I have accomplished. And therefore on the shore of his crucifixion, he is affirming with his heavenly father by the power of the spirit that he has accomplished the redemptive covenant, what they set out as the Trinity to accomplish. Suffice for our consideration, though with all of that being considered is Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Turn to the right. Or type in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. You'll scroll through Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. You'll get to Galatians and then to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, Paul understood, he wrote Ephesians as well, Paul understood that through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that the blessings of Christ are bestowed upon those whom the Lord chose. Did you notice it? Before the foundation of the world. And this sovereign choice was based upon the work of of Jesus Christ, which obviously, as, as Paul is describing it here and the way that it's taking place in the mind of God is something that had already been agreed upon. It was an accomplished thing, not just something that the Lord responds to in the moment, but an accomplished thing that was already predetermined, already agreed upon. So the first promise, God's first promise is made before time within himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, within the Trinity. And it was a promise, it was a gospel promise then that Paul references here in Romans 1 verse two, and the words promised beforehand, flip back to Romans, is actually just a single word. 
in the original language. It's a word that means to announce or to promise in advance. And it actually takes place only one other place in the entire New Testament. This complex compound word that here is translated, promised beforehand. 2 Corinthians uh, 9.5 is the other reference there, which is a promised gift that the church had made uh, to Paul. But here it's taking place as a promise that the Lord had made and then wove that promise, if you will, through the writings of history, the Hebrew Bible. And Paul is now saying, all of this is what I'm writing you about. But Paul is not writing about the redemptive covenant. He's, he's writing about the promise um, that ultimately comes from the redemptive covenant. Notice he says in uh, verse two in Romans one, that the promise was announced or written about by God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is a way of simply saying that throughout the entire Old Testament, when, whenever a writer speaks about the prophets or the writings in this kind of way, it's a reference to the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament. And so what Paul is saying is that all of that bears witness to the redemption of the world in general and the incarnation and victory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in particular. So Jesus made all of this clear on Resurrection Sunday. If you remember, he's walking with two travelers on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, uh, we're told, begins to help them understand the entire story by going back through the annals of all of scripture and revealing to them, teaching them, showing them how in everything it meant, it was meant to prepare the world for Jesus. He was essentially saying the entire Old Testament, all of Hebrew history was all about me. And so from the redemptive covenant that God makes before time throughout the Hebrew uh, Bible, the Old Testament, we hear the whisper, we hear the emphatic recurring announcement of this promise of God. This is then how, amazingly, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is able to preach and proclaim and explain and even convince some of Jesus Christ by only using the Old Testament, by only referring to the Hebrew Bible. He is in Thessalonica and he preaches Christ with conviction, clarity, explaining to that community who Jesus was. You see, within the framework of the redemptive covenant, we have these two covenants, the old and the new covenant, or if you like, a covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And these two covenants give historic and theological context, a framework, if you will, for how we are to understand the Bible and the entire story of our faith. And through the old covenant detailed in the Old Testament, Paul is telling us that the gospel of God, Jesus Christ, was promised. And so we have to ask the question, if, if that's true through the old covenant that the new one is promised, or through the Old Testament that, that Jesus, the gospel is promised, we should ask when and where. When and where does this take place? Where is the promise? Well, first, I think it's everywhere. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her wonderful, brilliant book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which we read frequently in my home, the subtitle is simply this, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. His, her subtitle cannot be improved upon. What she is helping us to understand simply from the cover of this children's book is that every page is a preparation to see Jesus Christ. Every story, every character 
through the Old Testament, namely the prophets, priests, and kings, were all meant to give us this anticipation that one day all of the ancient promises of God would be fulfilled through the Messiah. Because as we read the story, it's not just the details of the story, but but the weight of the story and the redemption within the stories and the hopefulness and the presence of God, all of the component parts of the story of the Old Testament, all of these things create this anticipation and this looking forward, this, this expectation that one day one would come who would make all things well. And in fact, it begins to be crystallized or solidified around this character, the Messiah or the anointed one that, that God's people were waiting for. And, and therefore, through these prophet, priests, kings, different characters were introduced to aspects of the Messiah, but were never satisfied. We're introduced to kings, but never satisfied by them. We're introduced to prophets, but we're never given the full word and full scope of who God is through them. We're given priests, but they've got to re-enter the temple every single year for the forgiveness of God's people. And so though the Messiah is anticipated throughout the entire Old Testament, the promise continues to endure because each person and each story ultimately leaves something, leaves eternity to be desired. Secondly, In addition to this more subversive and sort of holistic anticipation of the promise of God, the scriptures are clear and they are direct about the coming of the Lord and the redemption of all things. The Bible promises that all the wrongs, all of the evil or all of the sin within the story of the Bible and within the world will be made right. All the wrongs will be made right. This is promised from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verse 13, God is proclaiming the consequence over the serpent, the evil one. And this is what he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the initial clarifying announcement of the gospel. Many theologians call this the proto-evangelion or the first gospel. This is the first promise that Jesus would come. It's where the messianic expectation begins to be clarified, but also a promise is given to Abraham. Abraham is promised that he would be the father of a nation. Moses is promised that he would be liberated and that they would have a land of goodness and of flourishing. Ruth is promised adoption. And then the, the prophet Isaiah, his words begin to help us understand the nature of the promise that one would arrive specifically for us to anticipate that every other uh, marker, every other story, every other character was merely a shadow, a type of the things to come. Isaiah 53, verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so what we see, this promise from before time then begins to get woven through this this gospel promise of God that would be the intervention of of the Messiah in the uh, just the right time. All of this is announced by the prophets, both directly and indirectly through the writings of the Holy Scriptures. And so this is what Paul is saying in Romans 1 verse 2. And yet, There's more, isn't there? 
there's more for us to consider because God continues to repeat this promise, which if we really think about that is a, is a bit odd. It's, it's curious to us and we should ask why. Why is it that this is a repeated promise? After all, like it can seem a bit cruel. Like why for a thousands of years would you just over and over again repeat a promise? Seriously, I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna show up. Everything's gonna be okay, not yet. Everything's gonna be okay, not yet. What, what is that about? I think what happens is that we're beginning to drawn into this promise to ask this question, that as it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, as it's repeated in very subversive and sort of general ways, but also specific ways, we're, we're called to ask this question. And I think that's the point. There is something about the nature of God's words in general and his promises in particular, which teach us why he waits to fulfill his plans. There's something that happens to us while we're waiting that helps us to even understand why we're waiting. There's real tension in waiting. Gideon, uh, I think, really understood this particular problem. He, he's found in Judges. And Judges is a particular time in the history of God's people when things were definitely not going well. Joshua, the successor of Moses, is dead, and these judges begin to be elected and put into place to, to lead God's people, and very few of them do anything that is helpful. And uh, in one particular moment, or rather are many different moments, the repeated line throughout Judges is simply this, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes or the sight of the Lord. You see, in the middle of this mess, and it was messy. This was the recurring reality of God's people in the middle of Judges. In the middle of this mess, an angel comes to Gideon. And he says this, that the Lord is with you. Now, you would think Gideon would be excited about that. In the middle of a mess, God shows up, and, or rather an angel shows up and says, God's with you. You would think, praise the Lord. That's really exciting. I'm glad, glad that he's here. We, we could use him right now. But listen to his response. I'll just read it for you in Judges 6, verse 13. Here's what Gideon says. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Isn't this so real? Isn't this so human? This is one of the reasons I love the Bible and trust it, is because this is such an honest response from Gideon. Right? I think that we all, if we would just be completely 100, would certainly admit that when God shows up, we wonder what took him so long. Or when God begins to act, we ask the question, if you would have acted sooner, kind of like when he comes to Lazarus' grave, if you would have come sooner, he wouldn't have died. If you would have come sooner, we would have avoided all kinds of suffering and pain. See, the power of God to Gideon was, seemed like an old story. Did you notice the way he sort of talked about it? This is what used to happen. He's familiar with God's power, but he is eager for it to take place right in his midst. See, the faithfulness of God feels distance, feels foreign to him. There's this space between the made and fulfilled promises of God that is very hard for us to persist in faith and to believe. 
when God says something and that space in between until he accomplishes it. In fact, it's not only hard, but I think living between God's spoken word and God's realized or fulfilled promises is suffering. It's a type of suffering that all of us live in the middle of. Gideon and his people found himself in a space of incredible suffering because they were waiting for God to be true to his word. And what Gideon experienced was not unique to him and it is not unique to the people in the Bible who lived before the first advent of Christ. We all have to grapple with this. It is a fictional luxury that many of us believe we do not have to suffer and that we do not have to labor and wrestle with this. If you believe in Jesus, if he is your Lord, you will suffer because we are waiting for him to return. And in the already and not yet, we struggle, we wrestle, life is difficult, things are hard, we suffer. We all have to ask that question. If God is with us, then why is all this happening? All this is different in different seasons, isn't it? Generation from generation, season to season, community to community, but it's there. Suffering is always there. The All this that we're anxious about, that we're frustrated by, it's there. So how ought we be comforted by God's presence in the middle of a global pandemic? How ought we be transformed by God? Um, The God who is with us in any type of suffering, but particularly maybe the suffering that we're going through right now. What are we exactly waiting for? What do we believe that God has promised? Well, in, in the short term, I think we're waiting for healing. We're waiting for peace and community. We're waiting to be together. We're, we're waiting for human connection. We're waiting for work to start again. We're waiting for uh, there to be a something that deals with our fear that many of us are dealing with in many different ways. We're waiting for our anxiety to be calm. See, this is all in the short term, in the middle of a global crisis and a pandemic like you and I face with all of the different details uh, about it. But in the long term, we wait for even more. We wait for the redemption of the world. We wait for no more pain and no more tears. We, we, wait, we wait for the reunion with past loved ones who love Jesus and are with him. We wait for eternal rest and peace and joy. We wait for heaven and earth to be joined. We wait for all of the promises of God to be fully realized in their perfect and complete glory. So what's the point? between here and there? What's, what's supposed to be taking place? What's the point of God repeating his promises? Let, let's be real. Why doesn't he just fulfill them? Why doesn't he just accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish? See, this is one of the great weights of the Christian life, longing for the very clear promises of God to be realized in real space and real time. Well, first, I think that we should realize that suffering was actually always part of the promise. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. Suffering was always part of it. Think again about Genesis uh, 3, verse 15. Yes, God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But do you remember, it also says that he, or the evil one, will bruise, or rather that that he, um, the offspring, will bruise your, your heel, speaking to the evil one. So there, there, would, be, there would be pain. He will bruise the, the heel, rather, of the offspring of the woman. I think I finally got that right. So there's going to be pain in that particular 
word that God delivers. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, almost the entire moment there of promise is dedicated over to pain and suffering and agony of the Son of Man that he'll experience in the fulfilling of God's ancient plan. And so the, the promised gospel is a promise that one day everything will be okay, that one day all shall be well, but it's also a promise of suffering. It's a, it's a promise of evil and of death and of pain. This is the pathway that that glory must go through. After all, this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the glorification of all things. We're waiting for God to be true to his word. And in the middle of that, that's suffering. That's hard. Between the breathed out words and the incarnation of their fulfillment, we wait in hope, yes, but we still wait in pain and in agony. Paul will put it this way in Romans chapter eight. In fact, just turn there with me. Romans chapter eight, verse 18. I'm even sensing now that this is just a hard truth for us to relate to, that many of us are looking at our lives right now or even not believing that suffering has to be part of the story. And I think this this passage will help us to realize the truth in all of this. Romans 8 Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice the posture of God's people. Look, look at that verse. Put your eyes back on it. The posture of God's people is one of waiting waiting for the fullness of the fulfillment of God's promises to be realized. And the experience causes this inward angst, this groaning beneath the surface of our soul. And we share that anxiety, that that pain, if you will, with all of creation. See, suffering was part of the promise. Suffering is part of the gospel promise that, that, that Paul is writing to Roman Christians about. Roman Christians who have been teeming with a kind of culture of love of honor and love of glory and love of self-glorification. Woven within the fabric of the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Paul says, is a promise, yes, of Jesus and the gospel, but a promise that includes pain, a promise that includes suffering. Peter understood this. A unique relationship between suffering and the... uh, ultimate promises of of God, that that his salvation would come to the world. In fact, one way that that Peter uh, describes the promise is the sufferings of Christ. Hear this from 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter tells us just like Paul, that the promise was instituted within the Godhead before time. And then the prophets sought counsel by God's spirit. In other words, they didn't just write stuff and hope that it was accurate. They prayerfully sought the counsel of God's spirit to know and understand what it was they were to write, how they were to discern the times, what they were supposed to write down. And God inspired them as he inspired every gospel author to write his word And what they discovered is this idea of suffering and promise being bound up together. Suffering was the way of God's people in the midst of waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Suffering was the fulfilled promise. Jesus, after all, was he not tortured, ridiculed, beaten, shamed, and executed on a cross? Suffering is part of the promise. And this suffering continues See, I think it's, it's to this point, we go, yes, suffering was something that they had to go through. Suffering before Christ, perhaps, but now he's here. We don't need to suffer anymore. We don't need to go through the kind of pain that they did. But remember, this is a work that Peter says and a word that they discern God's spirit and was not just for them. But notice the language there in verses 10 through 12. This was announced to you. This is for you. In other words, his his post-resurrection, like you and I, the church, the early church, audience, readers, this is for you to know. This is for me to know. Even after the resurrection, even after the ascension of Christ and the institution of the church, suffering is still the way we wait for the promises of God to be fully realized. Waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled is suffering, is a form of suffering. See, whereas previous generations suffered as they anticipated the first coming of Christ, now you and I labor in agony in this world. We will have trouble, but fear not, Jesus says, I'm with you and he will come again. This is why Jesus then, knowing that to be the people of God is to be a suffering people, that this is why Jesus introduces his disciples in John 14. He introduces his disciples to the Holy Spirit through the name comforter, comforter or advocate or helper. Jesus knew we would be suffering. And so he describes God's spirit as the comforter. But once again, we still may ask why the delay? Why not just come back, avoid all of this suffering? Why wait thousands of years to repeat the promise? Why delay, right? When all of this suffering is gonna take place if and, and when God Delays. Let's be clear. The promise is revealed in Revelation chapter 21 that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor, nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, John writes, former things have passed away and the new have come. Why wait? See, if Paul is telling us that in Romans 1 verse 2, that we have the assurance that God's love and his faithfulness is with us, that he is who he has promised before 
time that if he has come, therefore we can trust that he will come again. But why wait? Why endure all of the suffering? Why go through all of this? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pondered a similar question as he preached this particular verse and he preached it two Sundays in a row in 1955. The same verse, two Sundays in a row. He took his time with this particular verse. He developed three reasons, three clear and helpful answers to this universal question. And and I cannot improve upon them. And so I will give them to you here. And these, I think, are true both for those who are waiting for Jesus' uh, first arrival and as we now wait for his second coming. It's God's logic pre Uh, Advent and it's God's logic even today as we long for the return of Christ. And so how are we to understand this delayed promise of God? Dr. Lloyd-Jones says the first thing that he points out is that so that we would understand sin, so that we would understand sin. Sin is our original issue. After all, the need for a gospel promise is a response or rather an understanding by God that he knew that sin would take place. And sin is costly. Romans chapter six, verse 23, Paul's gonna write that the wages of sin is death. Sin is costly. Yet, isn't it true? In many ways, we don't believe it. I I see this in my children. They reflect back to me my nature all the time. We don't believe it. We don't believe that our sin or our disobedience is really that costly. We think we can skirt consequence and get away with it. This is part of sin's curse. Part of sin's curse is that we are ambivalent and even apathetic towards sin. But church, my brothers and sisters, sin is a lethal evil that is killing you in whatever form it shows up. Lloyd-Jones said that sin is not merely some light act of disobedience, of some failure, but really is a profound disease of the soul. In waiting and suffering, we get an increasingly accurate picture of our sin. And I don't know about you, but as we wait in the middle of this pandemic, the Lord is giving me a very clear picture of my sin Vanities we could have easily ignored are now looking at us every day. Habits perhaps that you thought that you mastered are now frustrating you and are haunting us in the middle of our homes. Anger and control we thought maybe were minimal issues in our life are now crushing those around us. Sin has a way in the middle of our suffering to rear its head in a persistent and recurring and even lethal way that we have to face. And so waiting in suffering, it begins to bring all of these things to the surface and we learn even more intimately, regretfully of our sin. Our sin is devastating, especially in suffering. And so one of the reasons God waits is that we would get a clear picture of our sin. The second reason that uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones offers for God's delay is that we understand, we need to understand through suffering that we can't save ourselves. Think about all the ways that God's people attempted through the years to save themselves in the Bible. Israel tried to save themselves by fitting in. Jacob tried to save himself through romance. King David tried to save himself through power and control. Paul tried to save himself through religious zeal. And so he could write in Romans 8, 3, for God has not has done rather what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How did Paul know that? 
How did Paul know that the law could not save him? Because he tried it. He tried. In agony, in pain, he tried to save himself through the law. How did Jacob know ultimately and learn ultimately that romance was not going to save him? He tried. How did Israel know that fitting in was not going to save him? In suffering, they tried. How did David realize that power and control would not liberate him from the cancer of sin? Because he tried. See, in the middle of suffering, we face over and over again this constant nagging desire to save ourselves. And in suffering, we find our limits, don't we? We find the end of ourselves. We realize we can't and we never will be able to save ourselves. No matter how strong we are, waiting and suffering is stronger than us. It crushes us. It harms us. We always run out of time and we always find out that we are mortal. That's the point. In this Lloyd-Jones explains that in this way, God is finally proving to mankind that any attempt on man's part to save himself is futile. Church, we cannot save ourselves. And it's one of the ways even that God redeems our suffering by showing us that it's an impossibility. Lastly, the preacher suggests that God waits in order to demonstrate his own lordship. See, as we grapple with the devastation of our sin and our inability to save ourselves, the Lord is constantly at work. In in all this, God displays his utter control, his love for his people, his total authority. He does this through the story of Israel, through their sin and brokenness, continually undo them, but then God holds them together. These these were the things that that Gideon was facing, that he was referring to, even though Gideon was facing incredible suffering and tension and pain and, and messiness in his world. He knew that God was a faithful God. He knew that God was a God who shows up in power for his people, in grace, in in love and affection and faithfulness. God had made his lordship plain through the waiting and suffering of his people, and he still does. You see, though God may not have brought complete fulfillment to the ancient promises of the Messiah in the old covenant, and he has not returned yet, or rather Christ has not returned yet in the new, God is still at work, accomplishing his purposes, whispering his fame, demonstrating his kindness, showing his love, giving provision and comfort in the middle of suffering, all of which are anticipating the fullness of his presence when Jesus returns. See, God is still at work accomplishing his purposes and caring for his people even as we wait. See, he is not delayed, though the fullness of his promise may not be here just yet. So in all of that, what's he doing? He's demonstrating his lordship. See, many today may suggest that suffering is meaningless. There's nothing to be had through suffering. But this ultimately comes from an arrogant perspective of believing that if we can't see the purpose, then it must not be there. What I think Lloyd-Jones helps us to understand and what the scriptures constantly reveal is that through suffering, God makes sin plain. He makes it clear. We see the brokenness of our soul. And in the middle of suffering, in the middle of waiting for his promises, we see that we cannot save ourselves. And we must know that if we're to fully trust the Lord. 
And that through that, as our sin is exposed, as our inability to save ourselves is made plain, he constantly demonstrates his lordship, that he is still in control. Though the world may seem like it's falling apart, he is not. Though we may be worried, he is not sweating. Though we may be anxious, he is at peace. In fact, in Romans 5, Paul tells his readers that they can even rejoice in their suffering. Turn, turn there with me. If you're still in Romans 8, back to the left, to Romans chapter 5. This is so good just to look at and allow these words to wash over us, church. Romans 5, verse 3. More than that, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice that suffering, suffering in the middle of all of this, suffering gives birth to something, something that cannot be created any other way. Suffering produces endurance, Paul says. And endurance is the very thing that you need when you're waiting. When you're waiting on God, what we need is endurance to trust that one day his promise will be fulfilled. And so what God is actually doing in the middle of waiting, where we do suffer, where we go through tension and pain and problems, difficulty, what he's doing in all of that is actually giving you what you need to wait. Through suffering, he produces in us all that we need by his spirit in order to wait on him faithfully. How good is our God? It's a special kind of endurance. One that continues to grow and continues to give life. It's generative until it's genuine and this shameless joy begins to sprout up from our souls. See, suffering is the way we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled. So we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. We should prepare for it. That's right. We shouldn't be surprised when suffering shows up. We should be a people, part of what it means to be a Christian, orienting ourselves around the promises of God. Therefore, if he has promised that we will have suffering as we wait for his promises to be revealed, wait for his promises to be fulfilled, then we should prepare to suffer. How do we do that? Well, first, I think we need to confess that we love comfort. We love comfort very much. Back in February, I was listening to a podcast from the New York Times They were interviewing an epidemiologist speaking about the coronavirus in sort of its early days or some of the early conversations of what was taking place in China. And this epidemiologist was concerned that should the virus make it to the United States, concerned that we would not be a people who would comply with things like stay at home orders. Because he said that we're not a people used to being told what to do. He said in other cultures and other settings, this is kind of how their government operates, to be sure, in many respects to their shame. And yet, in another respect, the shame is ours. He, he was speaking about our inability to listen to advice that is ultimately for our help because we enjoy our freedoms too much. In other words, he was saying that we weren't ready. We weren't preparing for this. And reading the headlines today, it seems, and, and I mean this humbly, it seems that we, we weren't. It seems that many of his words were really close to the target. He said, America was unprepared because we love comfort. And he wasn't the first to observe this. In 1831, French, psycho- French psychologist Alexis de Tocqueville 
came to the States for a research project that would eventually become uh, the book, Democracy in America, which is actually still used and still in print today. And in, in a chapter on Americans' love for material well-being, he wrote this about the American culture. Their minds, de Tocqueville says, their minds are universally preoccupied with meeting the body's every need and attending to life's little comforts. That's in 1831. Attending to life's little comforts. There's something uniquely American about pursuing comfort and in turn avoiding any bit of pain, no matter how minuscule. Instead of suffering, we find ways to wait in the most comfortable way possible. This is just, regretfully, this is just as true within the church as it is without. We need music in the background when we wait on the phone. Be too uncomfortable otherwise. We need our streaming service to to go to the next episode for us. We don't want to click a button down. Church, are you with me? We don't want to click a button down and then select again. We want to just sit there and watch 15 seconds count down to our next episode. We want it to play all by itself. We find ways to be sure, pay for it, ways to skip in line at the airport. We want our church gatherings to be timed. We want hard truth to be delivered in such a nice way that I receive it in a comfortable way, how broken and deeply depraved that we are. We need special work from home pants that are incredibly stylish, but also incredibly comfortable. What we ultimately believe, church, is that easiest is always best. We even take this American ideal and put it on God. And this is why we're shocked about suffering. In fact, some of us have become so comfortable in life, so comfortable in our faith, so comfortable in the things of God, so comfortable in our lives that we have no idea why Jesus would need to call the Holy Spirit the comforter. It makes no sense to us. It makes no sense to someone. It's irrelevant to them. Maybe it's irrelevant to you because you spend most of your time comforting yourself removing yourself from any kind of suffering. This is not unlike the Roman culture that Paul was writing to. See, like Kanye West, the Romans had this idea that whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I'm sorry, Kanye did not come up with that idea. The Romans were living this out. But this idea was nebulous and unredemptive. It began to fall apart as soon as there was a costliness or suffering arose above the trivial. It's like what you and I often say, no pain, no gain. Helpful in a gym, but offensive at a funeral. It cannot endure the weight of reality. And so when any amount of suffering comes, we are unprepared. We get angry. We're angry now. We're angry in the middle of all of this. Our expectations are constantly being conditioned by a world around us and not by God's word. Because let's be honest, there's no way, there's no way we read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation and conclude that we should be living easy and comfortable lives until Jesus returns. That's a lie from the pit of hell. 
There's no way we would conclude that. So the only thing we can conclude is that we are not reading our Bibles. Those things that ultimately we pursue, like ease and luxury and comfort, they're not evil in and of themselves. They just are not central. They are not most important. They're not the point of the gospel promise. See, many of us have believed in a gospel that blesses us with ease and luxury and comfort. But this is not the gospel Paul is referring to. Suffering is the way. That's the promise. That's what the promise is about. And so simply recalling this promise, reading the repetitious and the number of ways that God recounts this aim to fulfill, fulfill all things through Christ, considering Jesus' first arrival, longing for his return, all of these cause us to take a completely different posture than the rest of the world, a completely disp- different disposition of waiting and even expecting suffering until Jesus comes back. Between the already and the not yet, we understand life will be hard. And in the meantime, we face suffering differently than those around us. This is true and it's unavoidable and we must acknowledge it. The suffering that I go through is different than the suffering that you go through. It's not precisely exactly the same. It's different than our brothers and sisters all over the world and the kind of suffering that they're going through. But we do not need to compare and contrast to admit that the calling for all of our lives is meant to be one of suffering. It's unavoidable. We don't cast it aside as meaningless. Instead, we aim not to waste our suffering. We aim not to waste our suffering. Timothy Keller in his book on suffering gives us a view of God, which is incredibly helpful in our consideration. God somehow maintains vigilance towards defeating evil while using even evil for the good of those he loves. This is what Romans 8:28 teaches us. Keller writes, the Bible is filled with cries of lament and shouts of why that God does not denounce. And yet God is so committed to defeating evil that he is ready to help us use it for good even in our individual lives right now. We prepare for suffering by rejecting comfort as our primary aim and understanding that even in our suffering, God is weaving together his perfect purposes for his church in general, for his world in general at large, and for you and I in particular. We prepare for suffering then by acknowledging that God is at work even through suffering. See, when suffering comes, we should remember that suffering is in the middle. It's in the middle of the story. It's not the beginning and nor will it be the end. We have a promise. This is why Paul is grounding his letter in this. We have a promise from God that all shall be well through Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. All shall be well. That's the promise. That's the gospel promise. God is is waiting and God is working and that we are longing for him specifically to bring about an understanding of sin, bring, bring about an end to ourselves that we would know we cannot save ourselves and clarity around the lordship of Jesus. This is the work he is doing in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our waiting for the promises of God to be realized. And so when suffering of any type of any variation, of any degree, comes into the life of a believer, we ask questions. We don't reject it. We don't avoid it. We ask questions. We should ask God and consider his word when we ask them. 
In other words, we don't avoid suffering. We seek to understand God's purpose for it, that we wouldn't waste our suffering. The first question I think we should ask is where is sin in my life? Where is sin around me? Where is sin in my world? Where is sin in my community? When suffering shows up, we should ask questions around sin. See, when sin shows up in suffering, but we are only wanting to be comfort, comforted, we will excuse sin. When, when sin comes up in suffering and we're, our aim is comfort, we'll excuse sin. Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm not trying to get involved. I, it, it was a mistake. We try to avoid the consequence. When we expect suffering and then we sin, we'll confess, we'll lament, we'll repent. See, one of the things I think that we need to confess as a people in the middle of the suffering that you and I are walking through now as a community is the sin of judgmentalism. This is one of the things that as just preparing and thinking through this, asking the Lord to reveal in my heart, isn't it easy watching somebody go through this and thinking they're doing it wrong? That they're not, they're not going through a global pandemic the best way they possibly can, as if we know how to do it. To be sure, there are guidelines and there's ways that the scriptures teach us, but we should be gracious with one another. We've never done this before. I've never walked through something like this. We should be people who treat one another with gentleness and love. Church, we need to do this with your groups, with your family. Receiving this kind of grace from the Lord, therefore, means we ought to extend it to one another. We should be careful of judgmentalism. We should repent of it in the middle of this suffering. We're walking through the same thing together, holistically, but we're walking through it differently. We have different callings and different responsibilities. And, and therefore, we, we should extend grace to one another. And secondly, I think what should we ask, not only is where is sin, but how am I trying to save myself in all of this? In other words, in what ways am I feeling or am I just trying to make myself comfortable and get through this? In what ways am I trying to build a world around me that gets me through this pandemic that gets me through the tensions around me, that gets me through until I have my life back to the way that I want it. How can I be comfortable until all of this is over? This is a way we're trying to save ourselves. See, we, in, in, in doing that and in being intoxicated with comfort in this particular way, we're saying that God's not enough for us, that our comfort is. Our comfort will help us. Our comfort will heal us. Our comfort will see us through. Our comfort will give us now what God is delaying to grant us. See, it's all about trust. We're not trusting him in this. So we have to ask, how am I trying to save myself? So how are you? How are you trying to save yourself in the middle of all of this? Thirdly, lastly, how is Jesus demonstrating his lordship? In what ways do then we need to trust him in the middle of him revealing his lordship? See, in this life, there is always room to trust God more. You have never trusted him enough. I have never trusted him enough. There is always room in our redeemed hearts to trust him more. So in this pandemic, in what ways are you seeing the lordship of Jesus? How is he proving to you that he is in control? How is he demonstrating to you that he loves you? How is he showing you that he is faithful? In all of those ways, how is he driving out fear? How is he bringing about health and your well-being? How is he showing you your neighbors and your opportunity to care for them and to draw near to them and to lament with them? See, when you're, when you're walking around the city getting groceries, Seeing other people, are you trusting that social distancing and your face mask are keeping you safe ultimately? 
or are you trusting that the Lord has you in the palm of his hand? Remember, we're not just waiting for a pandemic to be over. We're waiting for all of the promises of God to be fulfilled in the second arrival of Christ. There will be suffering. There will be suffering as we wait. Don't waste it. See, one day we'll physically be with one another again, either at Monroe Elementary or in the age to come with King Jesus. One day we will be together again physically. Do not waste your suffering now. Honor the Lord in it. Paul has opened his letter, introducing himself, and now he's introducing Jesus. And the first thing he wants us to understand is about the gospel, is about Jesus, is that Jesus is the promise of God that was made before the foundation of the world and woven through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. But this is not the only place that Paul writes about this promise. He actually begins his letter in the same way that he ends it in Romans chapter 16. He says that my gospel preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. See, Jesus is the gospel disclosed through the prophetic writings. Jesus himself is the gospel. Paul begins then with telling us that Jesus is the kept promise of God, and he ends that Jesus is the kept promise of God. Jesus has come. He will come. Paul is reassuring his readers that no matter what happens, church, no matter what happens, no matter what you go through, no matter the pain, no matter the problem, no matter the pandemic, no matter the issue, no matter the injustice, no matter the sin, no matter the suffering, no matter what befalls you, the promised one is with you and the promised one will come again and he will end all of your suffering. There will be no more. This is his promise. But Jesus didn't just come, did he? He came and he suffered and he died. And in his death, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and suffered for sins. One day suffering will cease, but for now we wait. In his resurrection, he defeated death and he sealed that victory in his resurrection. And one day the victory will be fully revealed and fully expressed in the fullness of time. But now we wait. In his ascension, Jesus ignited the reward of the gospel and imparted his comforter, the Holy Spirit, upon his people. One day we will be physically in his presence, but now we wait. We wait for the promises of God, which have been woven throughout time, throughout the Holy Scriptures. We wait for all of them to be realized. This gives us an eternal hope as we wait for him through our suffering. Endurance is being produced in suffering and waiting and longing. Therefore, confess your sin. Confess that you cannot save yourself. Confess that Jesus is Lord. And in this, we have confidence that the pain of suffering will cease. One day it will cease at the lasting fulfillment of Jesus' return. Suffering, therefore, church, is the way. But Jesus has taken away suffering's eternal sting. Let's worship him for it. Heavenly Father, we bless you. We thank you. Help us. Help us to wait. Help us to trust. Help us to lament. Help us to cry out. Ultimately, Father, help us to prepare and suffer well, 
that the name and fame of Jesus and the glory of God would be demonstrated even in our present suffering because these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed. So we trust you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.